Good please to Acts chapter 4. And as I tell you to open to Acts, it's just like old times. I think about it took us two years to get through the book of Acts. And I really enjoyed the study of Acts because in one way or another, we touched on just about every major doctrine that we find in the Word of God. And of course, you should know by now that Acts is the uh, story or the history of the church, the early church as it began. And you would imagine that the early church would be grounding people in God's Word. And that's exactly what the apostles were doing. Back in 2003, I preached a message just prior to the series as we started in Acts entitled, How to Have Power in the Church. And I thought that it was, it was, it was very important for us to do that at that time because what I was doing was taking the church on a, on a spiritual journey in which we would return to the, the doctrines of God's Word. We return our church to what Baptists have taught historically. And I'm certainly one who doesn't believe that we need to reinvent the wheel. And I don't think that we need to reinvent our doctrines. Uh, Jude told us to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And that's hopefully what I'm all about. That's exactly what I want to do. But I want to preach on this subject once again tonight. And I do believe that there, if there was ever a time when we need power and when we need the filling of the Spirit, we need it now. We're compassed on every side. All around us, there are people who reject the doctrines that we preach. And our doctrine is not very popular. But I'm of the opinion that if our doctrine makes us isolationists, which is not something that I set out to be, don't really want to be an isolationist, but if that's what it takes to preach the right doctrine, then that's exactly what we'll do. And uh, there may not be very many people around that, that teach the same things that we do, but if we can support what we preach by the Word of God, that is the most important thing. But I'm happy to tell you that we're not alone. Now, there may not be a whole lot of churches in Sonoma County that preach like we do, but all across this country, there are still good, sound Baptist churches that are standing for the truth of God's Word. And not only do we find that across the country, but we also find that to be true all over the world. We support missionaries who are still preaching good Baptist truths. Recently, we just picked up Brother Mike Craiglow in Brazil, and he's preaching truth. Uh, men like Wilson Maungu in, in Kenya, still preaching the truth and the same things Baptists taught historically. Brother Tim Ekno in India, Earl Lewis in Jamaica, you may remember him being with us, and, and many, many other thousands of missionaries that are still preaching God's word all across this world. And folks, the gospel is still the power of God unto salvation. And the gospel that we preach, if it's going to convert people, it has to be the right gospel. And we don't judge the church, as I said uh, maybe a week or so ago. We don't judge the church by uh, how many people are sitting in the pews. We judge the church and the success of God's work by the quality of the converts that we have. And this is people who stand with us and persevere with us and still believe in God's word. But I want to talk to you a little bit about this tonight, about power in the church. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read God's word. And we're going to read from two chapters tonight, a couple of verses from chapter 4 in Acts, and then we'll go over to chapter 5 and read there. But if you look in Acts chapter 4, verse number 32... It says, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power 
gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now let's go to chapter 12, or, or excuse me, chapter 5, and look at verse number 12. It says, And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for uh, this day that we have to come and serve you, to preach your word, to sing praises. We thank you, Lord, for each one who's come out tonight to hear this message. And I ask you, Lord, that you might help us to understand your word and truly, Lord, that we would see power in our church. We desire that. And we ask for your Holy Spirit to be with us tonight. A blessing this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. By the time we get to this fourth chapter of Acts, it's already apparent that the Holy Spirit is at work in the church. When the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached a powerful message, and God used that message and the falling of the Holy Spirit upon the people so that 3,000 people got saved. As we look at the beginning of chapter 4, we find also that there are another 5,000 The Bible says 5,000 men who believed and were converted under the gospel preaching. And many Bible scholars tell us that if you count in the uh, women and children that must have been in that congregation, that as many as 10,000 converts were won to the Lord in just a very short period of time. Now, I think you could look at that and you could say that that is real power. That's God's spirit at work. It was the Holy Spirit regenerating power that brought those people to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit uses that. He uses it effectually to work in the heart, and he brings souls to salvation. And we notice as the apostles preached that we don't find in the scriptures that the apostles uh, preached messages where they were just flowing forth with tears and begging and pleading, please, 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 somebody get saved. We really don't see that in the Gospels or or don't see that uh, in the writings of the Apostles. But instead, they preached the Word of God and they expected that as they proclaimed the Word that the Holy Spirit would move upon the people and God would save whom He willed. A few years ago, there was a fundamentalist preacher and most of you would know him if I called his name. But he claimed that he preached a Pentecost sermon in which he had greater results than did the Apostle Paul. This is what the man said. And this is the same man who said that when you give an invitation, what you need to do is you need to be very careful about this because people are standing there and they grip the back of the pew. They dig their heels in. And he said almost if you don't sneak up on them, you're not going to be able to get them to come to Christ. Well, folks, the proof of all this is in the converts that are made. As we look here in the book of Acts, we find people who stuck it out, who, who continued with the apostles. They stayed under the preaching. And these people are the ones who spread the gospel all around the world. Now, what we see today, though, in much of our fundamentalist preaching is that there are many converts, supposedly, who are one, but they never darken a church door. 
Uh, There's never any experience there. You don't find those people standing for the truth. You don't see them uh, in the church, and there's no evidence that they've ever actually repented and believed the gospel. Well, we don't convert people. No matter how hard that we try, no matter how much preaching that we do or how much pleading that we do, we simply do not convert people. People are converted when the Holy Spirit gives them the faith to believe. And folks, I believe that that the evidence of a changed life will be there when a person receives Christ as their Savior. John very clearly told us that those who persevere, I should say those who do not persevere, have never really believed the gospel of Christ. Now, this first Baptist church at Jerusalem was a church that had power because that's exactly what Jesus promised. He said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will have power. Just before Jesus ascended, he said, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria under the uttermost part of the earth. That was just after the resurrection. And what, in fact, have we just read in our text verses tonight? In the fourth chapter, verse number 33 in Acts, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So here we have a church that's characterized by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that power that was in that church ignited a spark that drove those people to go to where they preached the gospel to everybody that they met. In a very short time, the gospel of Jesus Christ circled the entire known world. Now, I think that if there's one key thing missing in churches today, it's what we find here. And that is really the power of the Holy Spirit, real power of the Holy Spirit in our churches Now, today in many churches, we can find promotions, we can find programs, there's lots of publicity, there's lots of prestige, they look for popularity with the world, they try to promote the preacher, they have all different kinds of ways that they're trying to get people into the church, but there are very few churches today that really carry out the commands of Christ and have power in their preaching. And yet, folks, there's, there's one thing that I believe that we have to have. If we're going to bear fruit for Christ, then we have to have the power of God's Spirit among us. If we're truly going to make lasting converts of the people that we speak to, we have got to have Holy Spirit power. Now, today, there are many uh, converts that are seemingly one, but many of those converts fall by the wayside because the ways and the means that they use to try to bring these people to Christ are, is simply done in the power and the energy of the flesh and not in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want us to examine the text tonight a little bit, and we're going to see two main teachings here about spiritual power. Now, the first thing that we would ask is, what are the conditions for power? And there are certain conditions that have to be met in order to have the Holy Spirit's power among us. Now, some of those things we've talked about, I spoke about the filling of the Holy Spirit, and certainly we need that. If we're going to have power, we've got to have God's Spirit infilling all of us. We must have prayer in the church. I mean, prayer was a vital part of this early church. They earnestly and fervently prayed to God about what they were doing and the work in which they were engaged. And we need prayer in our church if we expect to have God's power. And we notice right here, as we saw in verse number 31, as we read the scriptures, that the Bible says that the building where they were shook with power when they had the Holy Spirit. I remember the last time our building shook. Do you remember? I remember it very well because all of you deserted me. You went outside and left me here standing by myself. And I don't think there was one single person in the church who thought... 
Well, that must be Holy Spirit power. <laughs> We're conditioned to think that in that California, the first thing we think of the building, if the building shakes, it's an earthquake, right? That's why the building shakes. Other places, they may think, well, it must be demonic possession if the building were to shake. Well, wouldn't it be great if we had so much power that our building shook when we prayed? But I want to tell you something. I'm really not worried about that. I, I'm not expecting, really, quite frankly, God to shake the building tonight to show us his power. God had reasons for doing that uh, back in the first century. In the book of Acts, he had reasons for, for uh, uh, demonstrating his power in such ways. But I know this, even though we may not shake with power tonight, yet we still have the same God. It's the still same, the same God that they worship. And we know that God is among us because we've seen God work with us. But there are reasons why we have power. There are conditions that have to be met for us to have Holy Spirit power. Now, first of all, I would tell you that if we're going to have power, our power comes from purity. Purity is our holiness. Purity is our our sanctification. Now, there's a very important incident that took place in the first part of chapter 5. I think all of you know the story of Ananias and Sapphira about how they lied to the Holy Spirit. That's an entirely different message. I'm not going to preach that tonight. But the results of that and the way that the apostles acted in this situation was part of the purging and the purification process of the church. Now, here's a problem. You have people in the church that, that they're lying to the Holy Spirit. These, these are people who are not in one accord with the rest. These are people who are walking out of the way of God. And so God removed them. They were carnal Christians, and God removed them because it would ruin the purity of Christ's body to keep them there. And when you ruin the purity, there won't be any power. A great example of this is what we find in the Old Testament. Uh, This was when uh, uh, Joshua and the children of Israel went up against the town of Ai. They had just finished, you remember, uh, conquering the great fortified city of Jericho. And the next town that they were to, uh, to take over to try to defeat was this little podunk town called Ai. And when the children of Israel went up against Ai, 36 of Israel's men were killed. And the reason why was because there was one person among all of them, one person who hadn't kept the Lord's command. And so God said, I'm not going to give you the victory. Now, Israel was distraught about that. Joshua was very upset about it. The sin that caused the defeat came from one man. Now, I want us to look at that for just a minute. I want you to turn to Joshua chapter 7. We're going to read a little bit about this and what God had to say about this one particular sin that was committed. Uh, Later, we'll probably do a, a study in the book of Joshua. That's probably the next Sunday night study, and we'll examine this scripture in much more detail a little bit later on. But I want you to look at verse number 10. Because this is just after Joshua has come to God. He's prostrated himself. He's very upset about what happened in the defeat. And God speaks to him in verse number 10. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Get thee up. Wherefore liest thou thus upon thy face? Israel hath sinned. And they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken of the accursed thing, and have also stolen and dissembled also. And they have put it even among their own stuff. I want to stop there just a minute, because I want you to understand what's happening here. One man, Achan, decided to steal from Jericho things that didn't belong to him. All of it was supposed to be given to God, but he took it for himself. But I want you to notice here that God says to Israel... All of you have sinned because of this. He was holding the whole, the whole nation of Israel accountable for this man's sin. 
Now that tells you what happens when you have sin in the church. God holds all of us accountable if we let that persist. But look at verse 12. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies because they were cursed. Neither will I be with you anymore, except ye destroy the accursed from among you. Up, sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves against tomorrow. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in the midst of thee, O Israel. Thou canst not stand before thine enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. Now, you notice what God says? He says, sanctify thy people. Sanctify yourselves. And in this context, what God is saying is get it right. Get back to holiness and purity and get rid of this offender. And do you know that's exactly what the Apostle Paul told the church to do? I mean, he said that God will not tolerate sin in our midst. And so he said we need to get rid of the offenders. Now, we'll talk about that in just a second, but God will not tolerate the sin. Now, folks, I am a person who believes in church discipline. And the reason that we practice this is for the purity of the church. Now, we're commanded at times to remove people from our membership when they destroy the purity of the church. Now, here's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I hope sometime that you'll take the time to read the entire context of what's going on here. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, he says, But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Now there the scriptures are very clear to us that God expects discipline in the church. It's demanded. And that's because in order to have power with God, there must be purity. God does not tolerate sin in the church. Now as I say that, I know that every one of us sitting here tonight are sinners. All of us have sinned against God. And if you go away from here tonight saying that the pastor says, well, everybody who came tonight's perfect, then you missed the point of my message because I'm not saying that. We are all sinners against God. But what's incumbent upon us as God's people and God's church is to forsake our sin, repent of our sin, get rid of that sin, and get right with God. I mean, as soon as you find out that you've done something against God, when the Holy Spirit convicts you of that, you ought to repent of the sin. And here the Bible tells us that a person who does not repent of that sin, then they need to be taken out of the church because that destroys our power. But you know, times have changed today. Churches don't practice this anymore. We just read it from the scriptures, but churches don't practice it. And they say, well, if you do that, if you act like that, then you're not showing compassion towards people. Uh, You're not really showing any love towards people if you practice discipline in the church. Well, I certainly do believe that we ought to have love. We ought to have compassion for people who fall. And our very first thought always is to restore a person who's fallen. We pray for that person. But also the scripture tells us that when that person doesn't repent, then we need to do something about that. And if we don't, then we're leaving the impression that sin is all right with us. Now they say, don't do this to those people because that's not right. I mean, you offend them, so you ought not to do that. But the thing is, if we let people do their own thing, then eventually we end up hurting our church and the power of our church because we want to save somebody's feelings. So what about the power of the church? 
I mean, is it all right for us to give up God's power to spare another person's feelings? Well, you ought to be aware of this, that the reason that we are in church is to glorify God. And whatever does not glorify God is not to be a part of the church. So Paul commands this. The scripture commands it. And folks, if we want an organization that doesn't follow the Lord Christ, that is what we want it to be instead of what he wants it to be, let's don't call ourselves a church. Let's call ourselves the happy-go-lucky society of Roner Park, California. But if this is God's church, and if he owns it, if it belongs to him, then we need to stay in God's word. We need the power of God's word. We need to follow his book and to be people of his book. Now, folks, I'm committed to these principles. We've got to have purity in the church to have God's blessing. And so all of this business we have today of, of, of lying and thievery and, and sex before marriage and adultery and fornication and, and people living together, that stuff is wrong. And it ought not to be in the church. It ought not to be among the people of God. And we'd better do something about those things because if we don't, we will not have power in our church. So here is our responsibility. We have a responsibility as God's people to lift the standard of our conduct. We have that responsibility. Many pastors don't want to take it. They want to be compromisers. And instead of setting up a standard for conduct, well, to be politically expedient and to keep people coming to church, they just rationalize the sin, sweep it under the rug, don't say anything about it. And consequently, the church loses the power of God because there's no purity. But we need to go on because we also need to talk about something else to have God's power. We also need unity. The Jerusalem church was a unified church. Listen to what the word says. In Acts 1 verse 14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Uh, in our text verse, Acts 4.32, and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Acts 5 verse 12, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. So here you see a unified church. Now, do you remember when we were talking about the real Lord's prayer from John chapter 17? And do you remember the very last petition that Jesus prayed in that prayer? It was a prayer about unity. Here's what he says in John 17, verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also who it shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. What do you think that Jesus had in mind when he said that? I remember back when I preached this particular message that we talked about mutual dependence and we spoke about mutual devotion. That's part of unity. But there's also some other things that need to be considered as we think about the unity of the church. First of all, number one, we must have unity in our doctrine. In other words, there are some vital theological concepts that we must agree on in our church. Now, most of you are probably aware that before a person is accepted into the membership of the church, that they have to answer some questions about doctrinal unity. And so we ask people questions about, what do you believe about certain things? We talk about the way of salvation. Do you agree with us that salvation is by grace through faith alone without any works? Do you agree with that? Do you agree with our stand on baptism? Do you understand that there is a right authority in baptism? And is your baptism correct? Has it been given by a proper authority under the authority of a, of a New Testament church? Where did your baptism come from? 
We talk about the person of Christ. What do you believe about him personally? What do you believe about inerrancy of Scripture? Do you believe that the Bible is the Word of God? It's a perfect Word of God. Do you trust it implicitly? Do you believe anything should be added or taken away from God's Word? What do you think about inerrancy? What do you think about the Trinity? Do you believe in that? Do you believe in eternal salvation? Or do you believe that it's possible for a person to lose their salvation? What do you believe about the resurrection of Christ? Was it a bodily resurrection? What do you believe about the second coming of Christ? Do you think that he could come at any time? And so we question people on different doctrines to find out, do you agree with what this church teaches? And if you do, if you agree with those things, then we can accept you into our membership. But that's not all that the Bible teaches. And there are many, many other doctrines that we talk about. And I think there's some other things in which we have, uh, need to have unity. And that's because as the pastor, you have called me to teach the, the whole counsel of the Word of God. And so as we study God's Word together, hopefully we're going to examine God's Word. And we're going to come to agreement on these other issues as well. Eventually, as you listen to me and you carefully examine Scripture, you should be able to come to the same conclusions that I have come to. Now, I think if we study together, that's what will happen. And I want to tell you this, that what you hear from the Berean Baptist pulpit is Baptist doctrine. I'm not going to be preaching anything other than Baptist doctrine. Now, if I was going to preach something else, I'd be something else. I think that... Uh, The Baptist church is right on these doctrines, and so I'm going to teach uh, this doctrine because I believe that the Bible teaches it. So you're going to hear Baptist doctrine. And And I'm happy to tell you tonight that you're going to hear historical Baptist doctrine. You're not going to hear the doctrine of of, uh, Baptist churches today that have been hijacked by hyper-fundamentalism. You're not going to hear that kind of preaching. Now, as I've told you before, there's nothing wrong with the fundamentals. We believe in every single fundamental of our faith. And we we believe those things without reservation. But I do want to tell you that there's something seriously wrong with fundamentalists today. Now, I know that this is a general statement, but I want to make it. Uh, It's a general statement. But as a fundamentalist, in general, if if you are identified as a fundamentalist, then you deny the sovereignty of God in salvation. If you are a fundamentalist today, you deny the total depravity and the total inability of man. If you are a fundamentalist today, you deny the unconditional uh, election of God in grace to salvation. You deny particular redemption of God's grace and God's people so that you believe that Christ died for nobody in particular. You deny the irresistible grace of God so that you say that man's will is superior to God's will. You deny the perseverance of God's saints. Now, folks, those things are, in my estimation, are at the very heart and core of the gospel itself. What is a gospel that does not come from the plan and purpose of God? What kind of gospel is it? And what kind of gospel is it that they preach that fails more often than it succeeds? I don't believe the gospel fails at all. I think the gospel accomplishes exactly what God intends for it to accomplish. And every person that God's going to save, he makes that gospel effectual to them, and it never fails. Christ does exactly what he wants to do. So God uh, does everything that he intends to do. And the gospel never does anything less, or anything more, I should say, and certainly nothing less than what God intends for it to do. Now, I tell you, if you don't want to be a real Baptist, then you don't need to be here tonight. You're in the wrong place. 
We need doctrinal unity. We need to agree on these things. Now, secondly, we also need to have unity in our demeanor. And what I mean is we need to have the same convictions in our, moral, in, in our morals, in our music, in our manner of life. Now, this goes back to the issue of purity once again, but I have to mention this because unity is involved in this as well. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me when I talk about these things because you know that I'm not a person who wants to post all the rules on the door so that everybody checks the rules before you come in the door, make sure you're obeying all the rules of Berean Baptist Church. I'm not going to do that. You're not going to find me out here with a ruler measuring girls' dresses to see how long they are. You're not going to hear me talking about whether women are wearing pants or not. And you're not going to hear me talking about um, all these other issues, uh, such things like that, all the rules that people want to keep. I'm not into that. I'm not going to ask you whether you're going to go to movies or anything else. I didn't ask anybody to confess tonight. I have more trouble with deacons, I'm telling you. Churches are divided over those kinds of things. There's no unity in those particular kinds of things, and so the church uh, can't get along with one another. One side of the church wants to be more conservative than another part of the church. Another one wants to be more liberal. And so do you know what happens in our churches today? What you find is the contemporary service and the traditional service. I don't understand that. To me, that's a division in the church. Where is the unity when you separate the people out according to whether they're contemporary or whether they're traditionalists? doesn't make any sense to me at all. Now, here's the thing about it. Now, I know this is not the case. It's not the, the way it is in all cases. But I have found this to be true so many times that when you see the sign contemporary service, you might as well just write above it a word of explanation, worldly service. So many times that's the way it is because here's what they want to do. They want to accommodate the ways and the means and all the things that the world wants. They adjust the church to the things that are in the world. And that's usually what you find. Today we have to be the purpose-driven church. You know what that actually means? The purpose-driven church says that you have to be what these people want and our purpose is to get as many people into the church as we can in any way that we have to do it. And so that if that means that we have to change our music to where it's worldly, then we'll change our music because that's what people want. If it means that we have to change our standards, if we have to have a lack of standards, if that's what people want, then we're going to change our church to make it like that. And if that means that, that we're going to have to have a different gospel and preach a gospel that people like, then we'll change our gospel to meet those people's needs. You know something I seem to remember, something the Apostle Paul said? He said, come ye out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. So how we act, how we dress, how we think, that all makes a difference in our unity and consequently it makes a difference in our power. Now here's a third thing we need to be unified in and that is our devotion. When I preached about this in Uh, From John 17, we talked about devotion to one another. We talked about our devotion to the Lord. And we are to be united devotionally. Uh, We need to be devotionally of one heart and one soul, just like it says in Acts number 432. Now, there are many churches who have unity in doctrine. 
I mean, all the people will sign the same doctrinal statement and they say, we all, have, we all have unity in our doctrine, but they don't have unity in their devotion to the things of God. And so consequently in the church, you have some people who do all the work and other people are not so devoted to what God's doing in the church. And so they have no part of the work. You know, I thank the Lord for Brian Baptist Church because we have a very high percentage of people that are involved in ministry in the church. They're working, they're doing something. Now, praise the Lord for that. When we started the Pioneer Club, uh, maybe I didn't have as much faith as I should have because I thought, you know, we may have trouble staffing the Pioneer Club, but we haven't really had any trouble at all, have we? God has supplied, God's people have stepped up, and God has blessed us because of that. And we thank the Lord because we are united devotionally. But then there's other things that you need to think about in your Christian life as well, as far as your devotion is concerned. How about your devotion to services? Well, I thank the Lord for everybody that's here tonight on a Sunday night. Many people aren't, various reasons, of course, and uh, many legitimate, some are not. But I'm thankful that we have people in church on Sunday night. But what about Wednesday night? You know, I happen to believe that if a person wants to thrive in the things of the Lord, when we meet here for Bible study on Wednesday night, if you really want to know more, you ought to be here. You ought to have your Bible in your hand. If you really want to know more about God and you want to be devoted to the Lord, then why don't you study His Word? And what about our tithes and offerings? Do we give God the first fruits? I don't tell you to tithe because God needs it. God can supply all the money that he needs. I mean, he owns everything. I don't tell you you need to tithe because God needs it. I tell you to tithe because you need it. And that's because God promises a blessing with the tithe. So you need it. God's helping you. Do you understand that? God helps you when you tithe. Oh, you got the penny pinchers that want to hold on to every dime and they won't give the church anything. They just won't do it. They want to hold on to it. God's simply saying, I want to bless you. Bring it and I'll bless you. It's for your own good. So we need to be devoted in our tithing. And that's the responsibility of all members of the church, not just a few. And then if we're going to have the power of God in our church, we've got to have the same spirit towards the things of God, this same commitment of devotion, and that devotion has to be to the entire scope of our ministry. Now, I know all of us are busy, and you hear people talking all the time, well, I'm just too busy to serve the Lord. Well, if you're too busy to serve the Lord, you are just too busy. And this is when our busyness moves from being industrious over to being sinful. You can be too busy and you can be sinfully busy. So we need to understand something. Salvation is to heaven and thank the Lord to that for that. But the Bible teaches also that salvation is to service. And we must be mutually devoted servants of God. So we need purity. We need unity in order to have a powerful church. And those are conditions for power. Now, how do we know then that we've met the conditions of power? Well, let's talk about the second thing here, and that is what are the confirmations of power? Let's talk about a moment. What are confirmations of power? Well, in our text, there are actually two important evidences of power in this early church. The first one is the abundance of miracles. Now, notice that in the 12th verse of chapter 5, And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. Verse 16 says, There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. 
Now, I promise you this, folks, that the healing campaigns of the first century were nothing at all like the healing campaigns that you see today. Nothing at all like that. Because in these healing campaigns, or if you wanted to call it that, where the apostles were preaching, there were real miracles that were done. These were verifiable miracles. These were people that were lame, they couldn't walk, they were crippled, they were actually crippled, and they could walk again after the apostles prayed over them and healed them. These are people that were really blind. They couldn't see a thing. And now they can see again. The miracles are all real. Now you'll notice that in the end of verse number 16, it says, and they healed everyone. Now unlike the faith healers of today who pick and choose who gets in the healing line, they healed everyone. And there, one of the verses tells us that even just the shadow of Peter passing over people was good for healing. Now, we don't see healing like that today. We don't have the same kind of healing today. But we still have that same God, don't we? He's still a God who heals. You know, I'm often asked, do do you believe in faith healing? Absolutely, I believe in faith healing. James says, and the power of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise them up. Here's what I think. We don't need faith healers, but we do need faith. God heals through faith. And so the working of miracles and the conspicuous absence of anything that we can't prove by natural means is proof that the power of God is not working in the church. Have we seen the evidence of God's power in our church? I think we have. You've had me preaching for four and a half years and we still got a church, so that says something. God must be doing something. But we've seen changed lives. We see unexpected opportunities that come our way. And all we can do when we see those things is to stand back and praise God because it's God's power at work. And we've also seen healing, haven't we? We've prayed for people. We've seen the change take place. It's not because some man touched us. It's not because some preacher blew on us. That's not what heals us. The power of prayer fixes things. Prayer fixes broken bodies. It heals from disease. It happens when God's people pray. Now, I can't explain that. I don't know how to explain it to you other than to say it's God's power at work. So miracles confirm God's power. Don't be looking for somebody to perform a miracle. God will perform the miracle. Now, then finally, they also had this. They had confirmation from the addition of multitudes. Verse 14 in Acts 5, And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women. Now, here is a, is a growing church because of God's power. But let me tell you how that churches today add their multitudes. If you look at many of the so-called soul-winning churches today, multitudes are added because of promotional schemes, added because of Madison Avenue techniques. And so you find churches that have balloons and circuses and clowns, weightlifters for Jesus, karate shows, a promise of a pie to get people to come to church. Anything that they can do to get people to come, they'll do it. Let me ask you something. Can you imagine the apostles in the first century putting out a flyer all around Jerusalem, come to church, and we promise you we'll give you a pie with the sermon? 
Can you imagine the apostles doing that? Can you imagine them saying, Come and see James lift Peter over his head with one hand. And that's what people are doing to try to get people in the church. Can you imagine the apostles doing that? Do you see anything wrong with that? Folks, if you believe that salvation is all man's decision, and if you believe that the Holy Spirit is a bystander in salvation, then yes, you ought to do everything that you possibly can. You try every gimmick, every scheme, every promotion that you can to get people to church, because that's how you're going to have to do what you're going to have to do to keep them. You do that. But if you're a person who believes that God's Holy Spirit works in the heart to change the heart, and that's what brings people to salvation, then you know that God's going to supply all the power that's needed, and there will be results. Now, if some churches relied solely on God's power to do the work, they wouldn't have nary people come to church. They wouldn't because they don't have any spiritual power. Oh, they've got the promotional power... Every conference, every seminar, every workshop is to promote all the gimmicks that they can use to get people to come to church. Every promotional scheme that's out there, all kinds of gimmicks, all kinds of tricks. And that's what they use to build the church. And you can build a church that way. It is possible. Uh, You look around and there are a lot of churches who have even thousands of people who come to church because they've been brought in by the promotional scheme. And you can build a church like that. I mean, you, you can attract a cheap crowd to church like Just like garbage attracts flies. You can do that. But when the power of God is what is working in the church, then what happens is exactly what happens in the book of Acts. They were added to the Lord. There's a big difference in adding people simply to somebody's church role and adding people to the Lord. I'm not so concerned about counting heads of people who come down the aisle. I'm not as concerned about that as knowing that God moves whomever he will. And if we're doing what we're supposed to do, then God will give the increase. Now, we need power in our church. And in order to get that, sometimes we have to experience what we call a backdoor revival. Do you know what a backdoor revival is? That's when people start to get right. That's when you uh, purge the church of the dross. A backdoor revival is when a church has to get rid of some malcontents. It's when troublemakers have to leave. It's when sowers of discord have to part company with us. That's a backdoor revival. And we use that sometimes in order to purge our membership, in order to elevate the quality of the membership. We have to do it sometimes. And when we do that, what will happen is we'll experience a front door revival. And that's when people come and they trust Christ because we've got the power back in the church. Now, what we're looking for in Berean is power with God. Prestige and power with the world, that matters not at all to me. I don't care about that. I don't care how many people like us. In one sense, I do, but in another, I don't. I really don't care whether the people out there that aren't teaching the truth don't like us. That doesn't matter to me. If we have to be the Lone Rangers of Sonoma County, so be it. We'll be that as long as we're a church that's centered in God's will. Now, let me finish with this statement tonight. When we're making some people mad, we're getting some people right. You know why I say that? Because Jesus said, the world will hate you. When you serve him, the world will hate you. Now, unfortunately, there are many Baptists who don't like us either, and they get mad at us as well. But we're still going to preach the word until people get right. And that's because we know the power of God is working in us. 
And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Grace. That's a novel concept for a lot of Baptists, isn't it? They don't understand grace. Great grace was upon them all. And that shows they have the power of God in their church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the examples that we see in Scripture. We're thankful, Lord, that we can look back to this church in the first century and we see a a group of people that had real power and they entrusted everything to you. The Holy Spirit came upon them and the Holy Spirit supplied all the power that's ever needed to bring lost people in, to reach people, to convert people. It was nothing done in the energy of the flesh. And Lord, help us that we would use the talents that you've given us wisely, but we always understand where that all comes from. It comes from you and that you're the one who has to work in people's hearts to bring them to salvation. May we trust that power and none other. We ask you, Lord, you bless our people tonight. Again, we thank you for each one who's come out. Draw us close to you in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.